if you weren't the first one in or the last one to leave, if you weren't pushing yourself beyond all reasonable limits and sacrificing as much as you could possibly sacrifice just to get the job done, you weren't good enough, you weren't pushing hard enough, you weren't going to get to the top. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, a hospitality-specific podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma and conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier, and more sustainable hospitality profession. This week, we're treated to another episode that was recorded during COVID, but unfortunately, we just didn't manage to get live. We are chatting to Hannah and Andrew from the Dial House. Hannah's come from a TV directing background, so was relatively new into the hospitality industry. And Andrew has worked in many high-end London restaurants for people such as Richard Corrigan and Claude Bossy. The conversation that I had with them was all about the culture and the way in which that they look after their staff and just trying to open up conversations in terms of new ways of working. I love the passion that was coming from Hannah and Andrew during this conversation and I'm very pleased to share it with you today after a short word from our sponsor. The Burnt Chef Project is proudly sponsored by Lamb Weston, a leading provider of innovative, high-quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably-minded farmers and growers, Lamb Weston provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges, and mash. To find out more, head to lambweston.eu or search your partner in potatoes. I'm very keen to learn more about both of you. Like, who are you and where you're sat now? I've been a chef for 20-ish years. Hannah has never really worked in the industry until the last few. So, you know, sort of the, the work practices that I had sort of accepted as, as normal and, you know, just, just part of being a chef, when Hannah and I met she was like this is crazy like you know how do people work like this how are you expected to you know function in this environment with this level of stress for this many hours for you know really pretty poor pay and I'm going back 10 plus years here but in my career I've seen you know a huge amount of change from you know that sort of old school mentality shall we say sort of you know 20 years ago or so when I started to where we are now in our business really working hard to promote you know a healthy work-life balance mental health is a real priority for our staff purely because there was a point in my life in our business in our you know marriage where everything was just completely unsustainable there was a you know there was a point when we had to close the restaurant one night because I literally couldn't function I've been working Mm -hmm. seven days around the clock it was when we when we just started our second business. So we had one restaurant that was a year and a half old and another restaurant with rooms that was brand new. We'd bought the business and was failing pretty hard at that point. And I was trying to do everything and I literally, you know, hit a wall. Yeah, I? And, he'd worked the whole summer. In fact, what happened, it was because we had sacked our head chef because he was behaving inappropriately I think we would say with the team and we sacked him overnight as soon as we found out and it was the beginning of the summer in 2019 and we Andrew basically ran seven days a week between the two sites it broke him 
And yeah, there was a night when we closed, you're right. And when lockdown hit, there were a lot of positives that came from that because automatically we had to stop and relook at everything. And it was going back, reopening from lockdown that Andrew just said, I, don't, I can't go back to that. And we knew that if he felt like that, then all of our chefs would feel like that too. You know, all of these chefs have had their first ever in that year, Christmas, Easter, school holidays, Mother's and Father's Days, all of that, you know, Friday nights, Saturday nights with their family, with their loved ones at home, watching telly, having a hobby. And they saw life, you know, it felt like this terrible kind of secret had been kept from chefs for so long that actually there is life out there and maybe being in a dark kitchen isn't life really. And he felt quite emotional about it. Like, you know, we'd spent time together as a family with the children you know he felt like he was a proper dad again and he wasn't wasn't gonna go back to it and then coupled with that we saw a massive crisis quite clearly other chefs were thinking that and we looked at London and lots of the chefs in London were just or lots of the restaurateurs were throwing money at the problem and going we'll pay more we'll give you bonuses we'll do this and certainly in North Norfolk you know lots of the sous chefs were being being paid kind of crazy money and we were like yeah okay we understand you've got to pay well but actually it's more than that should we be paying people not to see their family and to swallow their mental health problems? Or is there a better way? Should we overstaff it so that we can work on a four-day week? Because let's be honest, when you're there, you work really, really hard and then you need to recover for three solid days. And actually then you can have a hobby and let's, let's but some people might not want that. Some people might want a five-day week, but slower. So we we created this thing called Happy Hospitality, which was a kind of, business policy we put in place which recognized bespoke contracts so we came up with rather than going this is the job who fits we would say who's out there what do you want yeah great people we wanted to find great people those great people come in all different shapes and sizes some have kids some don't some have you know things they like to do outside of work and we wanted to make that all possible for people because we have two young children you know we've got we've got two kids they're they're eight and six and they're growing up really fast. So, you know, we, we thought, how can we structure the business so that I can be at home with the kids occasionally? Yeah, not feel guilty and be a good dad or as, you know, as, as good a dad as I'm able to be. So how can we make that possible for our employees as well? You know, we've got a business model now, which just about works. We've, we've really had to sort of squeeze margins and put up prices and, you know, and, and get kind of smart with how, how the numbers all stack up. But We've got businesses full of fantastic people who work incredibly hard, happy, they're productive. You know the whole bullying thing, the bullying culture and chefing? You've got to wonder if they're just absolutely knackered. And we suspected that might be the case. And for the most part, it is. I want to come back to that because I've got, you know, my own sort of insights, if you like, on that. But yeah, I mean, we've we've worked incredibly hard on the business model and incredibly hard on the people side of it. So now we've got a business that is just about profitable, but full of fantastic people. And in the last year, we've won three rosettes at both our restaurants. So, you know, mm. the quality of what we're able to produce is is so much better. It's so much more consistent. Our staff turnover is virtually and nil. Just, we, we've, got, we've got chefs knocking at the door. We launched this. Happy Hospitality was launched in May 2020, and we hired 10 chefs in 10 weeks. Jay Rayner wrote about us in The Guardian because he realised that we'd clicked onto something that was more than just money. And I'm by trade, I'm a TV director. And it's quite funny. My mates are like, when are you going to come and do this in telly? 
And I'm like, yeah, TV's hard, but try hospitality. What's been your impression? Like, I mean, coming from a completely non-hospitality background, walking into this, you know, your your husband's doing 80-hour weeks in, you know, striving for accolades and feeling like you can't let the side down because it's that badge of honour. Like, what was your impression coming into this for the first time? If I'm honest, the industry feels disorganised in terms of management. And what the television industry is full of is, of course, people who have great ideas and can manage situations and make things happen, you know. And actually, what I recognised was that you've got these incredibly talented people trapped in rooms doing this masterful art, but nobody's really taking care of them. And nobody's really showing them how to manage, you know, what can make a brilliant commie chef you know, are they going to be able to manage a team and be a Sue? And is that Sue then going to really be able to take on the head chef role? Because let's be honest, being a head chef is about managing people. It's not about the food. It's probably 50% of the food. And I think head chefs take a long time to figure that one out. But actually, shouldn't we as restaurateurs do more to support that training process of what management is? So we're investing in that as well. But also it's about recognizing that if you're going to demand these hours of any people, there will be fractures, there will be bust ups, there will be, it's just not fair to put humans through that ultimately. And it's short sighted because if you do, your business will fall apart, but even more so now the pandemic, you know, people have a different way of looking at life. Now the pandemic is pass through the industry, we realize now that food costs a lot of money. Obviously, the prices are going up, cost of food as well. And we, for me, it's a story that we have to relay to the customers. It's a very important story of, hey, you know what? We've all been very lucky to go out for dinner so cheaply for so many years. Things have to change now. You have to pay more for your food. And here are the reasons why. And we're really vocal about that. You know, in London, they talked about invisible chips we didn't do invisible chips but we did say we have free range chef where your chef comes from is as important as where your food comes from you know are they well rested have they been able to see their rest of their herd you know you know and I know it's far it's a, a kind of fun idea but actually it's really bloody important and what we're really proud of now we stand here is that we have these chefs who some of them do flexible hours some of them you know we have people with all kinds of different things going on with them in terms of their personalities or things that they're struggling with. We allow for that because they are brilliant people and we want to support them. You know, it's not all completely selfless. They're great for our business. We want them to hang around. So how can we create a job that makes that work for them? And it really works for us too, because when we look back, we were spending so much time, worry and sleepless nights on recruitment constant churn of chef recruitment why won't they stay why can't that head chef get people to stay the head chef needs to not be mean to them he's quite tired though he's just got to do another 10 days straight i mean it's just it was a carnage it was a car crash mm. continue continue continued but this was the this was the sort of the work ethic that i you know i had kind of internalized i guess from you know my kind of years previous to running a business in the industry where if you weren't the first one in or the last one to leave, if you weren't pushing yourself beyond all reasonable limits and sacrificing as much as you could possibly sacrifice just to get the job done, you weren't good enough. You weren't pushing hard enough. You weren't going to get to the top. You weren't going to achieve whatever you know goal you'd set yourself if you weren't literally focusing everything you had on the job. I missed my mum's 60th birthday because I didn't want to ask for a Saturday night off because I thought you know I'd be letting the side down all week or, you know, 
I'd get shitty glances and people stitching me up when I came back to work because I'd left them in the shit on a Saturday night. You know, that kind of pressure that, you know, your colleagues or your seniors or your or you put on yourself is really harmful. It's really destructive. Where do you think that comes from? Is that just something that you, you just fall into from straight out of catering college or straight out of, uh, you know, into the commercial world? In my experience, it definitely wasn't prevalent in catering college, although I had a slightly unusual route into the industry. I'd been to university and then went to catering college after university. That didn't really work out for me. I did a, I did a, did my first year at college and left proudly clutching my MVQ level one and then just sort of went both feet into the industry. But I, you know, I wanted to work in good restaurants. I wanted to work in, you know, fancy places in London with big name chefs. And there was always an expectation that, you know, if you wanted to do that, it was going to cost you your life. life. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not cost you your life, but... Well, you put you, your but, life on but, hold, but, yeah, don't you? But, but everything, but you kind of get into this, you know, almost like a bunker mentality where, you know, your normal friends sort of fade away one by one. Your family, you know, stop inviting you to stuff. And you realise you're only friends, fellow chefs who have the same mentality. You know, you're drinking too much, you party too hard, and you're surrounded by this lifestyle that makes it all seem normal to an extent. I was that guy, you know, I was working around the clock, partying all night, and you wonder why your temper's on a hair trigger. And you're surrounded by, you know, people who are, you know, similarly on the edge or struggling to hold it all together. And it's not a healthy place to be by any means. You know, we watched that film Boiling Point <laughs> yeah. with Stephen Graham recently. Playing Andrew Jones, yeah, which play, is obviously play. his name. And, you know, I recognised a lot of those behaviours. I mean, some of them are a little bit outdated now, I guess. Yeah, thankfully, the industry is changing. But, you know, I recognised a lot of the pressure that, you know, those people were under. So, you know, we got to a point where, you know, I was running the business like that. I was expecting that of our employees, demanding, you know, that... Everyone was in from first thing in the morning. We weren't leaving until everything was done for the next day. You know, pushing because that's what you were used to. Because that's what I—that's how I thought it worked. You know, and we were pushing people too hard. I was pushing myself too hard, and the consequences of that were ridiculous staff turnover. We couldn't maintain, you know, a consistent team from one month to the next, which really limits your opportunity to progress. And it was costing us a fortune. So, you know, we thought there had to be another way. It's when you start looking back as well and you, you look at the behaviours that you're talking about, you know, the aggressive nature, the stereotypical, you know, chef perhaps or the head chef, you know, striving for perfection, making sure that they're one, leading by example by doing the 70, 80 hour weeks without any breaks and sacrificing both personal and, and financial health to be able to do so. How has it been like this for so long? How have people not suddenly stopped and gone, wait, hold on a second. Why are we doing this? But then you start to look at like the, the constant shit pit that you're in of high levels of stress. So your brain's not thinking as clearly as it should be because you've got all of this cortisol running through your system on a regular basis. Mm. And you're then just laser focused and you're effectively in habitual chronic stress and you're always bordering on the edge of burnout. So you're in complete denial that you're the one that's able to keep the ship afloat and that you're built like Superman or Superwoman. And only kryptonite can stop you. But in fact, sometimes, as, as you know, as Hannah says, it, it boils down to a point where you just end up uh, an empty shell, a husk of, you know, uh, the person that you th thought you were. And you have to, to you know, the, that rebuild process just, it requires so much more time and energy to be able to put yourself back together again, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And we're, you know, the difference we've seen in the chefs, when we put everyone on a four, we put our existing team on a four day week and we recruited with that as well. And, you know, they look like different people. They look healthy and they're happy and they're working collaboratively. And that's what I found really interesting, worrying really when looking at the industry, being new to it was how they just weren't listening to each other. And I could see the problems in the morning before they would brew. I could tell a sous chef was unhappy or something was going to happen, but the problems are so tight next to their face and so real and so advanced because it's just, they never have any time to reflect that it was impossible to manage it until it was too late. And actually what this means now is that they're able to breathe and live. And I know that sounds that sounds ridiculous, but they weren't breathing or living. They were just in this kind of hamster wheel of chefing. And, you know, chefs, look, they are a particular breed. They are incredibly talented. They want to be in that environment. It works for them using their hands. And, you know, there's lots of kind of people in there that are of a certain type, not everybody. But that doesn't mean that they don't need or shouldn't be, you know, encouraged to enjoy the other sides of life too, because actually it could be really damaging. And I think, you know, I think there's always been, my one headline I'd say is, I think there's been an expectation in the industry that mental health comes with chefing and that that's just all there is and that's what you have to deal with. But actually I think the industry has has created the mental health problems that we see and now it's our responsibility to change it. And unfortunately the real problem has been the customer because they're not paying enough for us to be able to pay the teams and put them on legal weeks. And now we are, Jesus, it's going to be a while before we make a lot of money, but it's important. Is it? And I'm playing devil's advocate here because when I started the Burnt Chef project, it was all about, it's the customer's fault. They're not paying enough for their food. But time and time again, it's the business owner I'm speaking to and they go, oh, we can't charge any more for the customer because the customer won't pay. And I said, well, when was the last time you put your prices up to find out? And they go, well, we, ju- we just can't do it. And it's that limiting belief of, if we do this, our business is over with. But actually, it's dying a slow, miserable, hard death anyway. Yeah, there, there's no choice. We've put our prices up. Like we are talking about it, we put our prices up and and you have to be ballsy about it. And we do desperately need other restaurants to follow suit because yeah, people will still go to the cheaper place around the corner, unaware that in a year they probably won't be there. You know, we're, we're doing this for the long term. Yeah, we're putting our prices up and it's not the customer's fault, but it is that the customer isn't paying enough and the customer has not been educated perhaps to understand because we've all been just well, burning chefs out to get through it, haven't we? And actually, that's got to change. And once that changes, we don't burn out chefs, we pay them properly for their legal working hours, that costs money and the customer pays for it. So yeah, it is a real education piece. It is a story to be told. And I'm bored of seeing, and actually, thank God, touch wood, we don't see a lot of this because we talk about it. But any customer that's going to get, ooh, it's a bit of a pricey menu, I think, my God, you think of how this is going to be in two or three years' time. The only restaurant standing will be Pricey or McDonald's. And, you know, that I know where I'd rather eat. We have put our prices up by about by about 30% across the board, actually, in the space of a year. I mean, partly because we've had to. You know, wage bills have gone up, food prices have gone up, everything's gone up. But there seems to be this perception that when we're full on a Saturday night, Everyone thinks we're making loads of money. You know, we, we're absolutely not. We're just, we're literally just paying the bills at the minute. We're treading water. And like Hannah says, you know, this is unsustainable. So, you know, 
We're in a time of real change, I think, in restaurants. Customers will have to start, or, or many prices will have to start reflecting the true cost of what it costs to put that food on the plate. Yeah. And the good news of that is that we have the most consistently brilliant chef team we've ever had. So arguably, the food is worth much more than it was because it's consistently great. They've got three rosettes at each site. And we, but you know, you have to work hard to justify that money. It can't just be you put your prices up and it's, stays the same you put your prices up everybody has time off and when they're there they work passionately they get involved with the farms they pick the produce they dry age the meat you know there has to be quality that goes with that of course but it has to be a reasonable compromise from the restaurant and from the customer's point of view exactly i don't know have you seen the blog that i released about three weeks ago on retention oh i don't know if we saw that one Okay, it's well worth having a look at. And the reason being is, I mean, it's all stuff that you already know, but it's tangible data that goes with actual the cost of turnover. So, ah. for example, in the hospitality industry, our turnover rates are around about sort of anywhere between 70, 80% up to about 135% on average, which means that if you have a team of 100 in 12 months, you'll turn over 135 of those. That's insane. Yeah. It is. I mean, do you know what the the national average is in both this country and America? So and probably Canada, like twenty percent or, or something. What is it? Ten to fifteen percent. Of course, is the is the standard rate of turnover. Yeah. and the average tenure in something like the financial industry is four years. In hospitality, is fifty six days, which means every fifty six days <laughs> you're losing about what. Four and a half, five thousand pounds in wages, wastage, uniform, insurance, payroll, you name it. You add it all up, advertising, yeah, yeah, interview yeah. time, all of that. And we're sat and back stress. and going, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Stress, you know, customer journey. Yes. And also from our point of view, from restaurateurs, the thing we worried about most before lockdown was staffing. I've never known anything like it. And, you know, in telly, we get together teams for three months. We do a project, we move on. But, you know, you can recruit. There are good people. We have problems out there, obviously. But this was insane. It, You know, I'm not surprised it was 120% because it felt like it. And the lack of sleep I had, knowing a chef was teetering on the edge, they were holding all of our cards. The mental health that we faced from that as well was just debilitating it was it was affecting our whole family life so when Andrew said he didn't want to go back to that to that again chefing I thought thank god I don't want my family to go back through that or our stress or you know running the business together it was awful so you know it'd be really interesting for us to look at those figures for our business because you know we we are retaining these chefs they've all been there for about a year I mean that's amazing and what a relief and I, and I do think it is the future of the whole industry that people are going to be having to do this? Because what is the other option? There is no other option. Well, a business will shut. It will reopen again under a different name, a different incarnation, and then they'll start employing with the same issues again. Or someone from that business who worked there as a chef or as a maitre d' or whatever it might be has left and then decided that they can do it, not knowing or having the skill sets that they need in order to run a business and to manage people. Mm. And then, again, the problem exacerbates continuously. But I think investors will pull out, don't you? Eventually. I mean, we're consulting, uh, and I'm personally consulting with a couple of businesses at the moment who are going to start specifically 
by looking at the well-being of people like profits profits etc yeah. yes they're building it to make money over a three to three to ten year period but they're doing it by focusing on the people and the produce so the two p's and I think that's very, very exciting because we'll have a very strong case study and a flagship to say, this is how you can do it from the get go. But there's a shit ton of work involved in that in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, upskilling managers, upskilling individuals in things like problem solving, conflict resolution, all of these things that will not just enrich their work life, but also their personal life as well. Yeah. I'm not spoon feeding here and saying, well, actually, everyone's underskilled and underknowledged, and that's what the hospitality industry is full of. No, what I am saying is that it's a highly stressed, very fast paced industry, and we haven't taken the time to make sure that our teams are as resilient and skilled as possible to be able to cope with what the complexities of hospitality can throw at them. Mm. Yeah. And we've just taken it for granted for all this time. I'm very interested to really chunk down into the financials. Because as a lot of people say, it's not possible. We can't do this. It's going to cost too much money. As a result, we're just not going to do anything. So I'd like to come on to that afterwards. But please jump in and we'll move on to that afterwards. I think the skills shortage is, you know, it's really part and parcel of it. People, I'm talking specifically about kitchen roles, but I think it applies just as much to front of house as well. People get promoted too quickly beyond their experience and obviously fail because, they're being asked to do, you know, to do a role that is beyond them at that point in time. But then there's no management, uh, no management training given, no upskilling uh, given by the restaurant or the employer. So you know, you have a you have a group of people working incredibly hard, very passionate people, but they don't really have the have the skills or the tools to succeed. I found that every every stage of my career as I progressed, I was shit at being a head chef for the first, you know realistically probably a year or so until I figured out that you know just working harder putting more hours in isn't the solution you know you have to be you know like as I say work smarter not harder you can cut off a lot of the problems just by lifting your head up and working through them rather than just run it waiting to crash into them and running a business was, was exactly the same thing you know we're, we're five years into our business and I think only now is it starting to make sense in the context of give our managers and our seniors the skills they need to do the job. You know, we're actively investing in management training programs. And as as you said, you know, the conflict resolution side of it is really important as well because, you know, ultimately these people need to get on in a stressful environment and get the job done rather than just throwing pots and pans at each other or, or screaming, shouting at each other. The the financial thing as well is is a massive part of that. You know, when I started, there was very little sort of feedback from the restaurant owners given to the kitchen in terms of, margins and cost of production and all this other stuff you were just expected to produce a menu and then then crank it out you know we're trying to engage our chefs much more in the financial side of things so they can behave you know responsibly and knowledgeably about the way the numbers add up because ultimately they're you know they're at the they're at the front line of that you know we can manage and we can give them budgets and we can show them spreadsheets but if they don't sort of feel it and see it on a daily basis, then, you know, of course you can't, you can't manage your business financially. You know, we're running on very, very slim margins. So, you know, a couple of percent here or there makes the difference to finishing the month, having made some money or lost some money. And, you know, a restaurant that doesn't make any money won't, won't stick around for very long. It's a great point that you've touched upon in the fact that ultimately head chefs are, they're running a micro business within your own organization. Yeah. Whilst you're there to oversee the top, you know, all the costs in terms of what comes in and what comes out at the end of each month, ultimately head chefs are there 
to be able to make sure that they're making the right level of GP to be able to not just cover the costs, but also make profit on top, which means looking at wastage, which means looking at retention, making sure that things are costed correctly. But how often are we actually teaching our teams how to do that as a business owner and providing them with the exact skills they need in order to be able to do that? Often enough, we're not. We're just saying, here we go, here's a spreadsheet and whatever you've learned over your over your time as a, as a sous chef or a CDP or whatever it might be, you put into practice and if you get it wrong you're in trouble type thing so it's really refreshing to hear that you know actually you're taking that time to provide that financial acumen that understanding of exactly where it goes why it goes how it's happening and then to improve on those skill sets is really refreshing andrew does a weekly flash meeting at each site which brilliantly as well also means that the head chef not only finds out you goes through the gp with andrew and you know understands where it went wrong if it did or why but also the general manager is there and you know often you get this conflict between front of house and back of house and actually what we've recognized is it's just as important to get the covers in and make sure that the customers have the opportunity to see the right wine list and pick the wine they want and get advised on any sides and all that stuff because it's just as important it's all great great that they hit their gp they also need to understand why the general manager is putting them under pressure to take that last table. And once they see the percentages from both sides, you get a harmonious team as well. So it's about being really open with financials from both sides. If you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise. We have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, well-being journals, plus a whole host more available on Worldwide Dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free-to-access e-learning content, as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health. So talk to me a little bit about the financial side of things then, because in order for, it's a chicken and egg scenario, in order for us to be able to increase retention, provide a better work-life balance, have the time to upskill our teams in the right ways, and this is front of house and back of house, you know, mental illness and high levels of stress, whilst different for both sides of the things, it's, it's, you know, it's not unique to one or the other. How did you go about doing that? Because in order to be able to do that, you must have been able to, well, as you said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, have to get more resources in place to be able to free up that time but that's an investment that requires you know digging into your pocket removing any profit that's there in order to be able to get to that stage so what sort of impact has that had on on your overall P&L for the last sort of six six months to a year or so we moved from a profitable position to a break-even ultimately we hired a roaming chef is what we called it that roaming chef works between our three businesses. It's an extra, you know, 30 to 40 grand a year, essentially. But that money means that when somebody goes on holiday, when somebody's sick from COVID, when something happens, we have an extra body. So not only are we staffing each site correctly, that's what we're doing. And in monetary terms, we literally looked at it and it meant if every single customer bought an extra side or a glass of wine, we can cover that roaming chef on a really basic level. That's what we did. And that's what it looked to be. Obviously, since then, we've had huge price increases as well. And we've had a terrible Christmas of cancellation. So 
yes, we've kept going with the price increases where it's relevant, but it was as little as three to four pounds a person, wasn't it? A cover. Yeah. I mean, this is where sort of the financial feedback with the senior senior managers really helps because you can walk them through it. You know, I sit with our head chef and, and general manager at each site and walk them through the PL and 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 you know and go through margins with them and say, look, this two percent doesn't seem like much, but you know, put that into a into a cash figure. This is this is how much you've overspent in the kitchen this week or how much you've overspent in the bar this week. But conversely, if we push up the average spend by, you know, a tiny amount, 50p a pound, actually we cover those costs, you know, we're suddenly making money instead of losing money. So, you know, it's it's about, you know, yeah, training people to understand the importance of that extra side, that plate of bread on the table, you know, doing a once around the room at the end of service, see if we can get some extra desserts in. This is the management information that we get from all of our financial stuff that we then use to give to give to the people, give to the chefs and the managers so they can see the importance of you know, doing the business at the end of the at the end of the day, and that's that's what it is. And like Hannah said, it works both ways. You know, we've worked really, really hard to give our employees work life balance, the opportunity to see friends and family. But on the other hand, they now understand the importance of making all those numbers stack up at the end of the month. So, you know, we've taken that time to pause and look up and really dig into the detail and make sure that our business model is working. And if it's not working, we now have the tools to push it in the right direction to get it to work. So it was about sustainability yeah, for yeah. sustaining the business and the teams. That was the priority. Before lockdown, it was about making money. Then it was just sustainability. Let's hold here. Let's make us the best type of model that you'd want to work for in the industry. Let's not worry about the 10% profit margin. What if it's seven? What if it's five? What if it's zero, but we survive? That has been our focus. And now we're hoping that you know it makes money again. But, you know, Everybody would make a loss in 2020. That that was what we just thought would happen. But actually to keep the doors open in a positive, sustainable way felt more important because it's not. it can't be about just putting plasters on the problem anymore. That's not good enough because we're all going to sink. I think, you know, the big lesson we learnt is that even as a, you know, a relatively small independent, we have to be pretty smart business people now. I mean, we used to run the business by seeing how much cash was left in the bank at the end of the month and, and gauging whether or not we'd made any money that way. We are not a big chain. We're not a big international corporate. You know, it's me, Hannah, you know, our area manager, a bookkeeper and accountant that, that, you know, that run the financials. We don't have endless resources to throw at it. So we realized if we're going to make this business work, it's up to us to really understand it in the finest detail. We have become, I think, much better operators because of it, because we've been pushed into a situation where we have to know how much money we make on a cup of coffee. We have to know how much money our staff hours are costing us when, we're, when you know, we've got someone coming in at 11 as opposed to 12. I mean, these these are the decisions we're now able to make because we understand the way our business works on a really fine level. And we didn't before, you know, so yeah, we're, we're trying to professionalize our operation and we're expecting our staff to become more professional. But the upside of that is that, you know, we can pay everyone better. You know, why shouldn't they be paid well? They're highly skilled, dedicated professionals, you mm. know, in other industries, highly skilled, dedicated professionals get paid well. Yeah. Because people understand the value of what they do. They appreciate the value of what they do. And this is why we keep coming back to the message that we have to give to our customers, which is, you know, if you want to come and eat in our restaurant and be served great food by great people, this is how much it really costs.
Yeah, and that's such an important and valid point. And it's one that we've trying to focus on when we were in the process of building an accreditation to recognize businesses who value the sustainability of the hospitality industry is not just about sustainable food and practices, but also sustainability by focusing on the welfare of people. With that, a big part of that is getting the general public to go, oh, wait, I'm going to choose where I dine based not just on whether or not they cater for my dietary needs, but also if my server is happy and they're engaging. And, you know, I look at the back of house team and they're the same faces I see year in, year out. That's where we should be getting to. And to be able to get people to vote with their feet as well and go, actually, we want to support those businesses and we're happy to pay an extra 25, 30% more in order to be able to see that it's going the right way. Now, under no illusions that are members of the public out there who go, I just don't give a toss. I want, I want food and I want it at the right price and I don't really care about my server. But I think that what we have seen since COVID certainly is a very strong change in people who have had similar experiences or shared experiences. And also, you know, certainly with the Gen Zs and the millennials now as well, we're seeing a lot more of the younger generation who are actively thinking and, and, you know, businesses like ours, social enterprises, you know, not not for profits who are rising up at this moment because people want to start to see changes with the way that business operates. And no longer is it just a way of making money, but it's a way of making people's lives happier and healthier as well. So, Andrew, you mentioned earlier on in the conversation about bullying, which is something that I know, Hannah, you mentioned, you know, are people bullies or is it just a case of the fact that they've been under chronic stress and they they haven't learned? And it's a conversation that keeps coming up and we've been caught in the Mm. middle of a a couple of times. My views on this are quite clear, or at least I believe I've made them quite clear, but I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about about your experiences with that and and your points of view as well. I think it's cyclical. I think Andrew actually is, I like to think a different breed and actually doesn't swear and throw pots and pans around. And if you speak to anybody that's worked for him, I think that you're actually pretty much one of the calmest chefs that we've ever employed. Well, you know, I, I am now, but as I say, when I was first put in a position of responsibility and overwhelmed by it and not succeeding as a head chef, you kind of fall back on what you know, and that is screaming, shouting, swearing, throwing pots and pans. I've done that. <laughs> I don't think I ever hit anyone with a pan, you know. You repeat the behaviours you've you've seen well, and that's experienced. Cyclical, yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. After a while, I I understood and I learned that actually, the more you shout at people, the, the more they switch off. They just stop hearing you. They stop listening, and and it's just a barrage of of noise. So it's not effective, actually. And you know, as a business owner, we've tried to you know educate our staff that there is another way to communicate with people, a more productive way, a more constructive way. Uh, that actually, I understand that by shouting at someone all you're trying to do is get the job done but there's a there's a better way to do it you know actually communicate with someone in a way that they will hear and understand and that will get you the desired result now that isn't necessarily the case with everyone and there are people who just love throwing their weight around and we don't won't stand for that type of behavior in our business you know we've seen the results of having even one person in a kitchen who has that mentality and the effect they have on all the staff and staff retention, front of house and in the kitchen. Unfortunately, there's no place for people with that kind of mentality in our business. What's interesting though is pre-lockdown, we were desperate, weren't we? So we would have recruited anybody. 
And what's really important to recognize is on a four day week where they have a decent lifestyle, we've got chefs knocking at the door. We can be more selective, of course. So we're in a position where we can go, oh, your references say that you've been a bit of like literally when we grill the references, we're like, are they a bully? Do they bully? I mean, it's one of the most important things. We think, you know, we've got great chefs that can train you into cooking. But what's the most important is how you handle your juniors and whether you train them with respect and use a carrot or a stick. I mean, it's so important. So that only became really clear once we kind of gave everybody a four-day week and de-stressed the situation. It then became very apparent who who was suffering stress and who was actually just a bit of a dick. And unfortunately, we had to get rid of the people that were just being dicks for the sake of it. We, you know, I'm very proud to say we don't, we don't, have, employ a, we dicks. don't have any dicks in our business now. And it's great. It's a different place. You know, yeah. people communicate constructively that, you know, yeah. they have a laugh and they get the job done. And, you know, no one feels intimidated or harassed or bullied. Nobody gets spoken down to. You know, we're a very diverse industry. There are people from all over the world working in small spaces, under pressure, and the type of language that may have been acceptable in the past isn't acceptable anymore. And we have, you know, stamped out. Yeah, I'm trying to be delicate, but, you know, we won't stand for, you know, poor choice of words, should I say, anymore. We just won't. You know, we've created conditions for people to come and do their job and be respected and enjoy it. And if someone won't get on board with that, then, you know, we're not the place for them. It's nice to hear that. And I think, you know, you've created a psychologically safe workplace in order to be able to keep your business running effectively, but also for the welfare of your teams. But I wonder whether or not sort of stage two, once, you know, you know, the model works currently, is actually proactively hiring those individuals who do have those characteristics with the view to say, well, actually, we can train you, we can provide you with the skills you need in order to knock those edges off, and to be able to like try it with us and see how it gets on because there is a pretensity to be able to change yeah mm. so it's interesting you say that we have to be careful obviously hr wise and confidentiality we've had a very interesting example of this recently and we didn't get rid of someone because we wanted to try and actually i've brought a number up on my phone to tell you about but we have employed someone called lizzie young who runs a thing called nourish mentoring training and we've uh, invested in three of our chefs so far are about to start the training, which is they do. She does this course called the step up. And it basically she's going to train a, a CDP on being a Sue and a Sue on being a head. And it's a, a whole 360 on body language, language used in the kitchen. You know, and when I heard about it, I was like, this is the thing we need. We need a really respectful kind of training for the chefs that we have to understand may have come from a background of parenting that didn't get taught that or has like Andrew be, worked for kitchens who've you know, been abusive to him. And how does he know to get out of that? I absolutely agree. And in the chef that we have now, we are investing money, £500 a course, to do this step up course with them from somebody who's a brilliant trainer in management to show them respectful ways of using language. And I think that is vital. However, there are sometimes instances where you have an individual who upsets the whole of the apple cart to the point where you have other people, and I'm talking significant percentages of your team, feeling like they don't want to come to work. And then I'm afraid sometimes before you could even get them to that course, you they have to go. And, you know, but I do absolutely agree with you. The dream is that you invest in people by bringing in people who have that understanding or paying for training with people like Lizzie to give people that opportunity because it is naive of us. You know, we go to this fantastic school in Norwich for vulnerable kids. 
they have an amazing allotment that Farmyard or Restaurant Norwich uses the product of products produced from. And we see those kids from those difficult homes, and we recognise that some of our chefs have come from those homes too. You know, they how do we just go in our middle class upbringing? Oh, don't swear. You know, that's not that's rude. Don't use the c word. Actually, it's a much bigger project than that bringing people into the world of not bullying. Um, but it's definitely something worth investing in. And these chefs are incredibly talented and absolutely worth it. So I completely agree with you. There has to be a real thought into the training and absolutely the change of nurturing people into a better manager as an individual. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pleased you mentioned Lizzie as well. So we've worked, we've actually worked with Lizzie and Lizzie very kindly helped us build some modules, which we provide on the Burnt Chef Academy for free, specifically to target, you know, conversations around diversity, bullying, inclusion, effective communication, you name it. We provide it for free to the entire industry to fill these skill gap shortages. And, and Lizzie's incredibly diligent and very experienced. So I'm pleased to hear that you're working with her. In the same respect that we've also launched a diploma as well, so like a mental health and leadership diploma, so specifically focused on that side of things. So I know that, you know, I'm sat here saying to business owners, what are you going to do to help try and repair the damage that's been done by years? But I'm not saying that at any particular point it is all on the business owners we want to help with that change and we really want to try and empower people to make changes themselves before they get to your business but it's a really i think it's a really really key point and for years when i was thinking about the burnt chef project and what i wanted it to do and what i wanted to look at it was looking past the high volume of mental health issues high volumes of stress and really starting to get down to the root causes of why and it's that skill skill gap shortage and not knowing any better and that's just the way that things have always been done, which we hear time and time again, and actually going, well, what do we need to put in place to actually re- remedy those? And it's really, you know, it's great to hear that you're so proactive in terms of actually going, well, let's let's train our managers to to use neurolinguistic programming and to be able to have a, a conversation that provides and promotes psychological safety where there's two-way feedback rather than, you know, like performance reviews. <laughs> If you say a performance review in any any management meeting, people shrink in their chair and go, oh, what have I done wrong? Whereas actually, they're a fantastic tool to be able to empower someone and for you to get feedback as a manager as well. If you are talking to someone in a shit way and it's having an impact negatively on their well-being and performance, I'd like to know about it. And I wouldn't want to know about it in a point to defend myself. I'd like to know so that I could get better and be better yeah and so it's about training individuals to use that tool in the right way 100 percent. so in terms of you've reduced your working weeks what other things have you found during this journey that you've you found have actually had really quite big impacts but they've been quite some sort of what you might have perceived early on as minor tweaks closing the restaurant <laughs> so we actually over lockdown had time to really drill into our figures. We didn't do takeaways as such, actually. We concentrated on where we might be going wrong and what we, how we could open in a better way. And we closed a restaurant. Farmyard is only open Wednesday to Saturday. So four days a week, all the chefs do four days. It's continuity. And we realised that basically there are so many factors that go into overstretching a team that we actually make more money by being shut an extra day. <laughs> So, you know, that that was definitely something that we learned. And the other thing that we've learned as an independent, which I think really means that independence can lead over chains, is that we reward people in really unusual ways. 
you know, we've been known to pay for counselling or buy someone a moped or pay off a bailiff. I mean, you know, there are things that you can do that mean more to people than paying them an extra thousand pounds a year, actually, is when they really need you that you say yes. And we've people have really needed us in the last year or so. I think coming back from lockdown, we said to everyone, if you're struggling with mental health problems, let us know. We did have a, a number of the team that needed extra help, care, you know, drug management, counselling, and we supported them through that. And I think those things we recognise mean more to people than a bonus for hitting your GP, which, you know, we do too. But, you know, I think those are things that independents can really thrive with, is recognising really personal care for your team. It's really easy to say, a bit like everybody, all the supermarkets talk about locally sourced, don't they? You know, it's the buzzword. But actually really backing up your buzzwords is, I think the thing that we've really learned Mm. is, yeah, we can say that. Like when Andrew first said, I want to set up a restaurant. And I said, what kind of restaurant? And he said, I'm just going to be a great employer. I was like, yeah, but what, how, where, what's the story? And actually, you know, I didn't know, but it's taken us a long time. You know, the word farmyard is very clever and I got it. And it's taken a long time to actually be the good employer that you wanted to be. We've had to learn a lot to understand what that really is yeah. and then how to implement it and then how to manage it and, you sustain know, sustain it. Sustain it. Yeah. So it's that's been a challenge for us. And, you know, hopefully in, in another 12 months, we'll look back and feel that we've made progress again. But I think we've got the business to a good place now. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've really learned actually thinking about it is stepping back makes me far more effective overall. My tendency is always to roll my hands up, you know, roll my sleeves up, get my hands dirty, get stuck in and, and sort of solve everyone's problems. But then, you know, I was I was just running around being a firefighter rather than a, a manager or a leader. And that kind of breeds a situation where your seniors are just waiting on you to solve their problems for them. So, you know, I've consciously tried to step back, you know, if the tap is leaking you know, I'll give someone the, the plumber's number rather than call the plumber myself and arrange for them to come in and, you know, do the legwork myself. Because mm. we had a time when I was literally just running around solving everyone's problems and people would wait for me to turn up and then just give me a list of stuff that was wrong. And I wasn't actually mm. getting anything productive done. I was just fixing stuff all the time. But now, you know, we've got teams in every department who are self-sufficient, resourceful, can manage and issues. they enjoy it. They, and they enjoy, enjoy it. managing they, the issues. They enjoy, they yeah. enjoy being given the responsibility. Yeah. They thrive on the trust that, that they have. You know, we have a well a situation this weekend where we had, we were a, a body down at Farmyard, somebody on holiday, our head chef on holiday at the Dial House. So Saturday night was a real pinch for me and I literally couldn't be in two places at once. So one of our juniors, Sophie, ran the Dial House for the weekend and she did absolutely brilliantly. We've had great feedback from the customers Great feedback from the managers. The whole weekend went smoothly. And, you know, Sophie's now learned that she can run full Saturday night on her own. So, you know, now... Not on her own. Not not on her own. She can manage the kitchen, (laughs) I should have said. (laughs) That would be something. Yeah. So, you know, now we've got an employee who has been put into a position of responsibility and thrived and come through it and now has the confidence to, you know, take on that challenge again. So, you know, that's good for the business, good for everyone when we have... Great people who have the have the tools, have the resources that they need, and have the confidence and the experience to push themselves forward. Mm. So that's that's a real thing I've learned is you know let people do their jobs, give them the skills and the tools they need, and make sure they've they've got everything in place they need to do their job, but let them do it. You know, 
You've hit upon a beautiful point, which is something that we discuss often enough when we're talking about in our training sessions about stress and why it's occurring. And I'm looking at a room full of managers and going, right, guys, WhatsApp groups, how many of you have them? And they're like, oh, well, we've all got them. We need them because we always need to be on call to sort out any issues that our team have. And I said, but Mm. why? Well, because we're the only ones that can do it. And I was like, but why? Why have you made yourself completely indispensable? when it's impacting your health and well-being because often enough it's exactly. the middle management that struggle with managing the P&Ls and the people I said why not empower your team so that Rosie or Jeff or whoever it might be out the front is able to handle conflicts or complaints why not handle it so that you know your CDP or your KP is able to phone when the thermomix has gone down or the rationale is broken you know empowering people to make decisions themselves in yeah. order to be able to keep the ship moving forward because yeah, otherwise we're just as you say you're just running around like a headless chicken trying to fulfill things because we haven't taken that time to step back provide that training provide that extra little bit of reassurance for people and that confidence level can improve so that the business can keep moving in a, in a healthy way it's a really really key point and a great takeaway andrew thank you thanks <laughs> I agree on WhatsApp <laughs> groups. Oh, WhatsApp groups. Yeah, WhatsApp groups are a bloody nightmare. We, we do try and encourage people to come off them and not have them because they're a bloody nightmare. You can't mm. get away from them. I think we have enforced, you know, the sort of don't feel you have to respond. If it's your day off or if you're, you know, out with the kids, yeah, whatever it is. Ignore it. it. You, know, you know, come back to it when you're working. Don't need to respond instantly to yeah. every single message. But also, we don't set them up anymore. We learned that. We were like, no, this is shit for us and them. Mm. I saw firsthand, I mean, I've been talking about this for for over a year now, but I saw firsthand the impact of a WhatsApp group with my wife this morning. She had a lengthy, I don't even know how someone managed to type a WhatsApp message that long, but she had a lengthy message from her manager saying, I'm not going to be in today. Here's a list of tasks that I need you to complete for me on my behalf. And first thing in the morning before a shift had even started, bing, straight through to her phone onto a group WhatsApp. And oh, she went from her. Monday Let's seize the day to, I really can't be fucked now. I really don't want yeah. to. She's a great, you know, she's a so great, stupid. great professional. But it's just, it's instantly, it's used in the wrong way. I think, to be honest with you, ban WhatsApp yeah. groups. There are much more effective communication tools like a phone call or yeah. an email. Uh, yeah. like, like we used to do in the olden days, you know. Yeah. We got rid after lockdown, actually. We had a management group and a front of house group at both sites and we deleted them. You're just not on them, basically. (laughs) But Bianca's not either. And we're like, do you know what? If front of house want one for themselves, that's fine. But it can't be about us being on there telling them stuff. Mm. The bosses shouldn't be on it. And Bianca came to me a few weeks ago and went, all these WhatsApp groups. And I was like, come off them again. You you don't need to be in them. Leave. She's our area manager. And she has. Because mm. actually, if they de- the kids want one, all right. But actually, we shouldn't be part of that. Because it's a bad way to communicate. It is. And we're heavily, overly reliant upon technology as it is. It's a great communication tool. You know, and um, even social media can be great for those who are stuck in isolation. But... Ultimately, trying to maintain all of those different communication channels, even just oh. personal ones, you know, what's that group with your mates yeah. or for a, a stag or hen do or something like that, and you're constantly maintaining it. That, for anyone who's listening to this now, leave a WhatsApp group. 
if you've checked that, those messages and you haven't commented or or you don't feel there's any benefit to you, leave it and just check in with yourself for that first couple of seconds after you, you leave it. And that sense of relief and just mm. oh, that calm is incredible. And yeah, I think there's a, we should be looking at actually reducing the amount of communication. We don't need to be connected all yeah. the time. It's just not healthy. No. At all. WhatsApp anxiety, is that a thing? Probably. Yeah. We're seeing it with the catering colleges we work with. A lot of the students are, are experiencing a lot higher levels of anxiety and lower resilience levels. And I can't help to think that phones, technology has got a lot to play on that because you're always comparing yourself to other people. You're always having to be on and communicate and be part of something. But actually, sometimes it's just been, you know, it's about being comfortable in your own skin and being able to, you know, not have to feel like you're missing out. That FOMO, you know, that fear of missing out all the time. So to round it up, I, I know, Hannah, at the beginning, you mentioned that you had some news as well. Were you able to share that news? Oh, with yeah. So we've just found out that we've won a third rosette at the Dial House, which is mega exciting we we won a third rosette at farmyard last year and farmyard's in the middle of norwich and the dial house is in the middle of nowhere in norfolk in the countryside it's a restaurant with eight bedrooms nowhere it's reefham oh reefham yeah very very popular market town <laughs> and yeah we're, we're really really pleased aren't we yeah thrilled yeah yeah the dial house has been a journey it was a big experience for us we started farmyard from from the ground up really so Although it was incredibly hard, it was easier, I think, than it would have been had we not built everything for purpose. You know, the, the kitchen fits the dining room, the menu is designed to fit the kitchen, everything works hand in hand, it all sort of fits together and it works pretty well. The Dial House, on the other hand, we bought a business that wasn't working very well and it wasn't the business we wanted it to be. And it took an enormous amount of time and effort and heartache and blood, sweat and tears, literally, <laughs> to turn it into the business we wanted it to be and yeah so f we're just coming up to our, our fourth anniversary this may at the dial house and we're celebrating our third rosette so yeah it's been a brilliant brilliant little uplift in a, in a you know a couple of sort of gloomy years but yeah it's a great achievement for us congratulations and it's one that recognizes both front and back of house as, a, as all good awards should do because it's a combination of both isn't it you know without one you can't have the other and you don't ultimately get the award so so great yeah. work to you both yourselves and also most importantly the greatest asset is is the people that you work with in your team so you know well done on that front and this is it without our sort of happy hospitality recruitment policy we wouldn't have the people in place to achieve that so that's been a significant change i think for us is consistency yeah, consistency uh, and that comes from having the same people in place and progressing them and developing them and none of that is possible when when you have a revolving door and in, in you know kitchen front of house any department really you know you can't grow and learn and, and evolve with a constantly changing team there's one more thing i thought i might mention to you as well chris if you don't mind which has come from our latest roaming chef matthew it's his idea i must give him credit for that but we love it and we're going to implement it which is he said, why does nobody contract people in hospitality on longer contracts? You know, why don't we start a job and go, these are your targets over the next coming few years? You know, if we treated people like it's a serious profession to come into and, you know, you know, say you start as a CDP, when do you want to become a Sue? What's your progression? What do you want to learn? You know, you hear, I hear a lot, you know, chefs saying, I want to learn, I want to progress. And then they're kind of like, you well, know. What does that actually mean? Well, what does that mean? Yeah, the, the head chef or the restaurant goes, okay, cool come on, let's muck in. And then, 
sometimes they might have a catch up, but it's not led in an organized fashion often. And kind of, you know, we're out, we're at six months now. This is where we said we'd be. And I know it feels like a slightly more corporate mentality, but there's probably a reason that those organizations worked well in terms of well-being and pay. And actually, I think there are one of the big things we've learned is there are really important lessons to learn from those often failing businesses now because they don't have the level of cooking we have and skill. What they did do really well is training and HR and actually sort of be learned from that. So we're, we're going to take on a bit of that kind of idea of structuring our contracts in a way that we kind of diarize goals for the team so that we can really keep that nurture going. It's not like, right, tick to box, done that course they're on their own, you know, because you can just suddenly turn around and the chef's gone, oh, I've got a better, better opportunity, I'm off to London. And you go, damn, if only we'd nurtured her more. We don't want that to happen. So that's kind yeah. of our next step, really. Yeah. It was one of these blindingly off things where I felt really stupid. And of course, you know, I just to sort of backtrack slightly, my degree was in economics. There's a, a principle in economics that, you know, productivity is a function of capital and investment. And, of, and in terms of capital, you've got, you know, material that you can invest in and human capital as well. So why aren't we, as businesses, if we want to improve our productivity and our bottom lines, investing in human capital? Why aren't we investing money in training people rather than just buying shiny new thermomixes and packer jets? Why don't we spend a couple of grand, you know, teaching our staff how the business works or how this or that works or, you know, how to be a better manager? That will surely impact the bottom line as much as, if not more so, than, you know, a shiny new piece of kitchen equipment. Yes, I love this. Investing in people. And well done, Matthew, as well, because, again, we do want this to be a profession of choice. Ultimately, if we want people to be able to stay with us and be part of our journey and be part of their journey, then we need to let them know how they fit into that and understand that them having a direct career career progression and knowing where they are with regards to that and knowing that there's equal levels of commitment from both the managerial team and also from the individual with the progression plan is so so important and I was having a conversation the other day with a friend of mine who you know six months ago or a year ago when they had their last review and it was a pay review they said, I want to progress. I want to be in this new position. And as a result, I also would like to earn more money. These things are important to me. What's happened over the last six months to a year? Diddly squat. How does that person feel? Completely unmotivated, completely like they don't mm. fit within the organization. They don't understand what they're doing well. They're not really feeling engaged. And so mm. the detriment of not doing that you know, as you say, this bit, this epiphany from Matthew is like, well, why don't we do that? You know, this is something that that's run through generations of hospitality professionals. And we go, just because it's never been done before. I don't, you know, I wouldn't know how to do a one-to-one -one review on a, on a monthly basis and be able to have a open, safe conversation with someone because it's not within our skill set. So being able to invest into training our managers who can then invest their time and energy and right skills into the people who want to develop it's only going to have a positive benefit. It allows someone to be seen and heard and appreciated and understood. It seems like a no-brainer now, but it's often very difficult to be able to get from there to here when you don't have the the space, the time, the capacity, the low, you know, the stress mitigation to be able to deal with that. So I'll be very interested yeah. to see how that goes for you and, and see how your team feel over the, the next 12, so, so 12, 18 months, really. But I think this has been a fantastic episode. We've covered a, a lot of topics. Was there anything sort of final that you wanted to add into this before we round it up? I don't think so. I think we feel really positive about the future. I think we've learned so much. 
and the industry has got a long way to go, but it's a fantastic industry that we're really proud to be involved in. And I think it's got such potential with such creative, incredible people. And let's be honest, what we've all learned this year, the last two years, is that the most important thing in life is time spent having great experiences with people. And that is what hospitality is built for. So, you know, we're not clearly, we're not going anywhere as an industry, but we can just get better. And I think there's, the pandemic has given us is brilliant time to reflect on what that could be. And I think, you know, what I've loved about it is being more collaborative with our neighbours. You know, we've got restaurants that we're all busy doing our own thing. And now we're talking to each other and finding out how we're doing. And I think that is a really exciting beginning part of the next chapter for all of us. Yeah, I think it's it's a very exciting time in hospitality. It feels like the industry is suddenly maturing into a, you know, recognised, respected sector of the economy. When I started, it was kind of servitude in a way, you know, you paid a pittance and, you know, sort of shoved in a dark basement or a, you know, a, a hidden room at the back of the restaurant. But through the pandemic and you know people like Kate Nichols have been you know hugely influential in this the importance of hospitality to the wider economy is now being recognized and that that can only be a positive when you know we're looking to recruit bright hardworking, passionate dedicated people in the in into the industry we need to give them a positive career path rather than just saying well you know your your future prospects are divorce alcoholism and mental health issues i mean that that's not an industry that anyone wants to get into so you know the further we can move away from that the better for everyone yeah what a beautiful point to end on it is a fantastic career and you know the burnt chef project was started not to set fire to exactly what were the issues were it was to be able to resolve them and provide supportive measures so that more people can come into what I truly believe is one of the best professions in the world. So it's great to have organizations, businesses like yourselves, individuals like yourselves, who are you know fully embodying that and, and carrying it on forward as well. So Hannah and Andrew, thank you ever so much for joining me today on this episode. Thank you so much Thanks, for having Chris. us.